Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. On this episode, we discuss the career of Tim Burton. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. This is Anthony. And this is James. And this is Halloween week. So we decided to dress up in costume for this episode on a Tim Burton spotlight. And we're really excited. We've been saving this one for a while. Heavily requested. I am wearing a Sweeney Todd costume makeup and everything. And Anthony's Beetlejuice. And he looks fantastic. It's showtime. So if you guys are watching on YouTube or check us out on Instagram, his costume looks pretty phenomenal. My wig is kind of whack. You look great, man. It looks like an it's, afro. No, you're just being self-conscious. Like, who made it's, this it's Sweeney Todd wig? Hey, it's, it's like a helmet. It's 20 bucks. You, it was good. It's a good deal for twenty bucks. It's getting returned for twenty bucks yeah, on Amazon. It's gonna be a free purchase, so it's fine. But anyways, it's a lot of fun. We love dressing up, and we I went. feel really. This is the first time I've ever put makeup on my face. I Me think. too. Yeah. Yeah. I've never done it before. But our, our fans have been requesting us to dress up ever since we. I dressed up as Hermione. <laughs> <laughs> Still the best, most iconic outfit you've ever yeah, worn. On Hermione the show. with a beard. <laughs> <laughs> a half beard. <laughs> you weren't quite there. But anyways, Tim Burton is such an iconic director. He's got this amazing unique blend of his own art form, his own style. He's very artistic. He's got this like gothic fantasy horror that he always walks a tightrope on between being terrifying, but also not being scary at all, just like weird. And he's not tour for sure. And he's just such an exciting filmmaker. I think in the, especially in the, the late eighties and nineties, he dominated the box office, probably the most popular filmmaker at the time. Yeah, because he had the Batman movies, then he had Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands, and that's a that's an unbelievable string of four films to come out. Is it was Beetlejuice, Batman, uh, Edward Scissorhands, then Batman Returns, and that's just wild. And you know, this is before superheroes were all over the place. And he, what people gravitate towards him is, like you said, he has this unique vision, and nobody makes movies like Tim Burton does. Not not a single filmmaker working today does what he does and i think that's why audiences love him because he's something different you know there are a lot of fans of the gothic there are a lot of fans of like horror those kinds of people really love his work because they um see something in his work that they love if i had to make a comp between him and another director i would say the closest thing to him is wes anderson but obviously tim burton was first in their completely different styles but in terms of this unique tone and style and creating your own atmosphere i would say that that Wes is maybe the closest thing to Tim Burton, but obviously the very quirky whimsical version, not the horror whimsical. Yeah, absolutely, because you know they are—they both have very specific visions, and they're auteurs in their own right. When you watch one of their movies, you know it's one of their movies. Especially, they both have um, the same, mostly collaborate with the same composers, especially. So right now, it's Alexandre Desplat is making all of Wes Anderson's films, and then famously, Danny Elfman did has done all of Tim Burton's movies. So the music and the visuals combined. You really can see just from, from 30 seconds, so, oh, this is a Tim Burton movie. Same thing with Wes. Yeah, but in, all, in addition to the creating their own worlds, they both are probably the most well-known directors that still do stop-motion films. Yeah. And so Tim Burton, you could argue, reignited that genre and type of storytelling back in, was it, the 90s? Was the Well, his first shorts that he was directing, those were some mm -hmm. of those were stop-motion. But he really reignited with, uh, he didn't direct The Night Before Christmas, but it's like all his storyline and characters. And so that... And then Corpse Bride. Yeah, but Pee Wee had a stop lot motion. of stop motion in it. And I mean, film. Beetlejuice has a ton yeah, of it as well. It has a, is a, a fantastic amount of stop motion. And his feature 
live action films. So before there was even a Nightmare for, Before Christmas, he was using uh, a great amount of stop motion in his films because this is pre-CGI. And you know, this is how, you know, stop motion was essentially, you could say, the CGI of film history. You know what I mean? King Kong is a great example of it was all stop motion, but it looks like it's a real thing, especially if you're watching it in the context of that era. So stop motion was a valuable resource for filmmakers. And then I, uh, nowadays, it can't compare to CGI. You know, Spielberg famously originally planned to do his dinosaurs as stop motion, but then um, uh, Lucasfilm's company, they were like, hey, Industrial Light and Magic, they were like, hey, check out this mock-up we did of a, of a T-Rex. And then he saw that and he's like, okay, I can't do stop motion because this blows it out of the water. So it, it's, it has a ceiling nowadays. But there's something to it that it's still appealing to audiences where Wes Anderson, he does fantastic Mr. Fox, and he also does Isle of Dogs, and they're both very popular and well-known films and two of his best for sure. But before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to share us with your family and friends and become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast, especially because James just put his two weeks in network. Patrons get two perks <laughs> like personalized videos, podcast schedules, top tier patrons get a monthly shout out on the podcast. And the best perk of all is every single patron, no matter if you're in the $2, $5, or $10 tier has access to weekly bonus episodes of the show, which post every Wednesday. We just did Werewolves. So it was awesome. Head on over to our new website, RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com to see all of our sources of content, our custom merchandise, as well as our shirts, our t-shirts, our hoodies, our hats. We have some winter hats coming out in movie posters and follow, subscribe, wherever you're listening and watching. Hit the notification bell and thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get back. Well, before, this, you spoke so quickly. There's something that you, you mentioned for a second. For a brief moment, I, I put my two weeks in at work. James quit his job today well it's not officially a done yeah so i got two weeks left yes. well i mean this will have aired and i would have we'll have yeah, one, week one, left. one week left so you have seven days left of work and well technically on this like, moment of yeah. filming you have two weeks left of work because the podcast has, has been doing well and we've been getting so much support from our fans so everyone shoot jim a message say congratulations on social media it's all because on of YouTube. patreon everyone's so, killing yeah, it on patreon yeah, patreon has really helped us support ourselves so everyone congratulate james Oh, say hi to him. My, say say we love you. My makeup's gonna you're gonna see me blushing through it. <laughs> the good thing I have makeup on. But you deserve it because you work very hard on this show. Thanks, pal. I appreciate it. You work hard too. Anyways, let's get back to Tim Burton. So You're so you're such a professional. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're not here and they don't want to hear us talk about me and my, my yeah, they job. Do. They want to hear, you. They they hear you. us talk about Timmy Burton. <laughs> so <laughs> So Tim Burton. He's such a great eccentric filmmaker, but of course his filmography, he's got like I think 18 or 19 feature-length films that he's directed. And not everyone is obviously a hit. He's got some duds in there for sure. And I wouldn't even put him in dud category. They're just like either misunderstood, not successful. And, you know, they weren't quite the quality of films that he was putting out in the Mars 90s. Mars Attacks is an example. Yeah, like what the Mars hell? Attacks is, we loved it when we were kids, but, you know, it doesn't really, when you compare it to something like Sleepy Hollow, it's like, you know, it's it's definitely in the lower tier of his filmography. Yeah, but I mean, even I think in the 21st century, his last great film, you could probably argue, is... Um, Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber on Fleet Street, and that was 2007. Because since then, he did Alice in Wonderland, which even though made 1.2 billion dollars, not very well critically received or by fans. Dark Shadows was a kind of not really well under well um, well it, it, taken it a, by people. He's not. He it was straight comedy, and it didn't work. Is yeah, what it was. It was, it was a little, maybe too, yeah. a little too dry. Frank and Weenie wasn't bad. Big Eyes wasn't terrible. Miss Peregrine's Home of Peculiar Children wasn't, you know, super popular. Dumbo, I think a lot of people thought was a bit of a miss. But he does have a couple projects in the works right now. So he's filming a show called Wednesday for Netflix. So this will follow Wednesday Adams. And then he's also was announced he's going to be doing Beetlejuice too. So hopefully he can turn things around. Not that he's like failing as a director. He's still, I mean, he made a movie that made $1.2 billion in 2010. 
But, you know, I think what he was doing in the 90s and late 80s was just way more his vision and way more critically received, much, much better. You could say that uh, heavy use of CGI could have something to do with that because it's definitely for sure the first half of his filmography is definitely better than the second half. Yeah, but that I started mean, around Charlie Chocolate Factory in 2005. Yeah. But still, I mean, his movies are still great and they're, and they're still Tim Burton movies. You yeah. know, there's still it's that unique vision. And what's so great about him is that he started out as an artist, and he's he was always, he grew up as an animator, wanting to be an animator, and you know he was always drawing and creating as a kid, and he actually um, was an, originally an animator for Disney, and he was he went to school with the the original Pixar crew. He yeah, was, we talked about some Pixar. Yeah, he episode. was part of that crew that founded Pixar. He didn't found Pixar, but he was hanging out with those people. They were going classes together, so that was a great friend group of like a bunch of brilliant minds that you know changed cinema forever. And he had the opportunity to continue animating, but he wasn't happy as an animator. Um, he was being restricted and, you know, his incredible ideas and concepts and things that he wanted to do weren't really being accepted by Disney. And so he left and started doing his own thing. And eventually he was able to get Pee-wee's Big Adventure made. Yeah, so he was working at Disney. Yeah, but a little backstory. So he was born in 1958 to... His parents in Burbank, California. Oh, it was Valley Kid. Yeah, his father, he worked for the uh, recreation department, and his mother was actually owned a cat-themed gift shop. So I'm sure we can guess where, <laughs> of course he, she did. where he got like the eccentricness and the yeah. weird interests from. Probably his mother's side. But um, yeah, so he, he started animating and drawing when he, when he was young because he was a bit of a recluse and very secl secluded himself, basically. Didn't really fit in. His father was also a baseball player, tried to pass that on to him, but he really didn't can't find any interest in it. And he was kind of a loner. And that's where he dove into old horror films and monster movies from like the 40s and 50s, which we just talked about a few episodes ago on the, um, the Patreon bonus episodes when we talked about the different eras of horror. And he also began drawing. But, you know, like most people, when they begin drawing, they have like a traditional edu education with it and they draw traditional things, you know, you're learning the techniques, but then he just kind of threw that out the window and went his own route with his art. And that's where he developed this incredibly unique style that no one else draws like him or even though people kind of copy him nowadays, but it's his own vision, it's his own art, it's own, his own creativity. And his entire career, every one of his movies, he does all the concept art for his characters and Pretty much what you see in his notebooks and his drawings, that's what the end product is, not just in the stop motion, but in terms of even the physical characters, like like Johnny, Johnny Depp and Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. And obviously Jack Skellington, he had been drawing for years before he figured out the story. So all of his drawings of his concept art leads to the final uh, transformations of the characters in the films. Yeah, and he definitely invented like that gothic style of animation. You know what I mean? Because Maybe like, not invented it, but he made it popular. No, but his style yeah. in particular, because... The thing with all the stop motion films and even Nightmare, even though he didn't direct it, but he, like you said, he did the he did the pre production and the concept art is you know the characters have they they look like they've been designed by the same person. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if you if you get and there are people who even make like mockups of like well what a Tim Burton character will look like for a particular person. You know what I mean? And it's his style of artwork that has really um, transcended you know. Um, design itself and it's become its own thing and people will like duplicate their own artwork by you know using him as inspiration and I think he is has become extremely influential for young artists for sure over the last 30 years I mean he could he could be one of the most influential uh, just artists for people yeah and he's possibly the most recognizable filmmaker of all time when you like say you put on a random movie for somebody who knows film 
I think Tim Burton's the one where you could recognize immediately, oh, this is a Tim Burton film. Oh, you know? oh yeah, for Same sure. Same thing He's with Wes there. Anderson to an extent. Obviously, Scorsese has his own tone and everyone has their own style, but Tim Burton specifically, you put something on, you're like, this is a Tim Burton Look film. Look at how pale they are. It's definitely Tim Burton. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny Depp again. <laughs> but that's what I mean. He's an auteur, so his style... His creative voice really supersedes any story that he's working on. And, you know, he has this amazing blend, like you said, of horror, fantastical, strange stuff. And, like, and you know, there is some horror, but his movies aren't super scary. I would say that Beetlejuice is the scariest movie. Uh, Sleepy Hollow is pretty scary, mm-hmm. too. But more than anything, it's their, it's their style and their tone and, you know, the weirdness. And he always blends that, you know, dark comedy to it. And I think that's why he and Johnny Depp work so well together because Johnny is really great with comedy. I mean, you watch Edward Scissorhands and I, you crack, I crack up watching that movie. He's mm-hmm. so funny in Edward Scissorhands. And obviously we see him as Jack Sparrow being a comedic genius, but I think that J- Johnny really taps into the comedic elements that Tim Burton wants to get in his performers to keep the movie from being a straight up horror films. Yeah, and Tim Burton, he has a ton of trademarks like most great directors do. You know, I think one of my favorite parts of Tim Burton films are his opening sequences, and they're always so interesting and unique, and it always has something to do with the story, obviously. Sometimes even the plots from plot points from the movie are in there, and like, for example, the Batman, while we're, the camera just like is going through this maze of the bat symbol, it's super cool, Sweeney Todd, it's the meat pies and everything, Chocolate fa- Charlie and the Chocolate factory it's of the chocolate factory uh the bassinet and batman returns the spaceships and mars attacks even the uh the apes weapons for planet of the apes so i I love his opening sequences and it does a a great job setting up the tone for his films especially when you combine that with danny elfman's music which obviously helps create his artistic vision even more yeah and danny elfman i mean his career was made off of tim burton movies he's a genius composer and just like Tim Burton, he has his own unique style, and you can recognize a Danny Elfman score even when it's not Tim Burton. Like Spider-Man, you can tell it's, it's Tim Burton. I mean, Danny Elfman for sure. And I think what he and I think he's the only composer that can really capture what Tim Burton has in his mind for what he wants for his music, and that's why they've worked together so often. I think that there's something about you know the instruments he likes to use, uh, the choir work he likes to use, the brass, the way he like likes to write strings. Uh, I think that. Tim Burton would never want to use another composer if he had a choice. Yeah, I think a great example of how important his music is to his films is the opening sequences of Edward Scissorhands, which um, I think that it opens with like some mechanical stuff, like because he gets made by that man. But it, then it's just a bunch of shots of suburbia, these like helicopter shots of just these big suburbs. And with like any normal music, it would just seem like a normal movie, but it's just it's just daylight suburb but danny elfman's music is blasting and it's like his crazy quirky eccentric music and you're like oh this is going to be a weird movie even though it's a completely normal cinematography for the moment yeah exactly and in the art design of tim burton movies are just genius and i mean edward scissorhands for example like just like you said those suburban neighborhoods what's really great is all the neighbors and all their houses extremely colorful reds greens yellows blues all over the place but then edward scissorhands he has the same colors you're wearing right now, you know, whites, blacks, grays. And, you know, I think that there's something about Tim Burton likes to have his characters, his lead characters, have this pale quality to them, have the dark hair. Uh, I think that he looks at it as, you know, going back to gothic horror films from the 40s and 50s, trying to capture that look of the black, black and white film. Like Frankenstein. Exactly. And, stuff like that. and so I think that. That's the main reason why he likes his characters to be so pale 
and why they always have very dark hair. I think he's trying to call back to the films he grew up loving. Well, you could easily say that t- currently Tim Burton might be like the only uh, mainstream filmmaker that's keeping that German expressionism alive from the 20s and 30s. We're, I mean, I'm talking about like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Nosferatu, all these, especially in films like Beetlejuice, where all these warped hallways and doorways and tunnels and interesting shadows and trees, but even his design like of trees in all of his films, that they all sort of have that tone of that great aesthetic that those German expressionist films had, especially if you watch like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, all you film majors listening right now, if you ever have to write an analysis comparing an old film to a new film, do Doctor uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Beetlejuice, and you'd be shocked how similar they are in terms of style. Um, and Nosferatu, obviously, with like Dracula 1992, that would be a great one as well. But I just think that he's he's helping keep that style alive, and it's all over his films. And it's even in um, uh, Batman, like Gotham mm. City looks like it's like out of Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It looks like it. it. Yeah, it didn't feel like it was out of the comics. It was. It felt like Tim Burton's vision, you know what I mean, yeah. capturing that old style. And there's something to that, and we can't deny... Tim Burton is definitely one of the most successful directors of all time. Yeah, his movies have grossed over $4 billion at the box office. That's a ton. So audiences always gravitate to his films. You know, he has diehard fans. And like we said, he's a, he's a recognizable name. His films are recognizable by mainstream audiences. But I think that it's something to be said that to have such a unique filmmaking style, to have billions of dollars worth of profits is really, really incredible and impressive. And, you know, he never really... He likes he makes what he likes wants to make. He never, you know, does something for the studio. He never compromises. He still sticks to his guns and, you know, the movie he the last two movies he made still look like Tim Burton movies and feel like Tim Burton movies. So, you, there's something to be said about like how he's been able to control his career unlike most directors are. I like how he is aware of his talents and where they work best. Like he's never been credited for a full screenplay before. And he usually just develops the story and the characters, and he always has screenwriters like fix everything else up and work on the dialogue. I think it's very clever to always play to your strengths, and I think he knows that his strengths work best visually as a director, storyteller, animator. Yeah, David Fincher isn't credited for any. And so um, John August is his frequent screenwriter collaborator. He's done like half of his films or something like that. So I think it's it's smart for him to focus mostly on the visuals, the story, and the characters versus worrying about all the dialogue because there's only so much he can do. Yeah, and I mean, they must have a great working relationship, and I'm sure... His writer must be a diamond in the rough if they keep working together to know his tendencies. You know, it's like a great director and their editor are always in a close relationship. And directors like to use the same editors for their films to help them win the process because they have a great working relationship. He's got a ton of other trademarks I'd love to talk about as well. Oh, let's hear them. So um, one of them is anthropomorphism, which is when you give um, lifelike characteristics to non uh, like a tree, like a tree or yeah, something like that. Yeah, an animated object. Yeah, you animate objects. Yeah, inanimate objects. Obviously, Danny Elfman with the music. He also has a few others, including a plot that always focuses around a misunderstood outcast, which is pretty much half of his films. Anytime Johnny Depp's in one of them's for sure. And Wes Anderson. <laughs> he also features um, dead dogs or dismembered dogs. And I think like four of his movies have like a dead dog or a ghost of a dog, a zombie dog. Obviously, Frank and Weenie. The whole movie is revolves around one. But I think that relates to when he was a child and he lost his family dog which was very very tough for him but he still probably seems to be trying to express that pain in in film Uh, many of his films feature townspeople who misunderstand or distrust the lead character edward scissorhands specifically he often has scarecrows in his films 
fathers are always portrayed in a negative light in his movies because I don't think he got along with his father very well. And um, obviously, most, most of his films either tend to be dark or very colorful. It's seldom a blend of the both. There are a few movies in his filmography that are just kind of just like straight up movies versus like having an extreme Tim Burton aesthetic. So the one with um, Amy Adams, Big Eyes, that might be the most non-Tim Burton Tim yeah, definitely. film. He definitely put the reins out. There are like some of his whimsical, fantastical elements to that, but not really intensely. And then maybe Big Fish, but there are some fantastical elements to that as well. But those those two are probably the least Tim Burton-y movies. And then you could probably say like something like The Corpse Bride, which is the stop motion film that he directed. That one might be the most... Tim Burton aesthetic and visual outlet he's ever made. And I would say Beetlejuice too. Probably, yeah. Be- Beetlejuice for sure. And Sleepy Hollow. Do you have, hold on. So which of his 18 movies is your favorite? My favorite? It's it's so hard to pick. I was actually thinking about that yeah, today. Yeah, I, I was so surprised because I knew he made a lot of movies, but I, I forgot that it was 18 films. Like he has made almost a movie every two years for his entire career. And that's a lot of so, output. Yeah, so if I had to pick one that's my favorite that he's, he's directed... It'd probably be Edward Scissorhands, but he has Great so many pick. so many underrated films as well. I mean, obviously Batman, but even Ed Wood is actually a really good film. And Sleepy Hollow, I like a lot. That's one of my favorite horror films, especially to watch around Halloween. Beetlejuice is fantastic, but I think I would probably pick Edward Scissorhands. My favorite is Sleepy Hollow. I just really love that movie. It's I love the period piece. Obviously, you know me in period pieces. Oh yeah, we know. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, everyone in the neighborhood knows how much you love period pieces. Anthony. And Johnny Depp's great. I just really love the story. It's that classic story you grew up knowing as a kid, and you know the 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 whole the whole film itself. I think is really perfectly made, and it's just a really great fun horror film with a lot of comedy to it. That I think that's my favorite Tim Burton. The thing with Sleepy Hollow is it's a great example of how when his films bomb, like for example, right before that he made Mars Attacks, mm. was not very successful, super weird, not really uh, received very well. But um, then he made Sleepy Hollow afterwards, and that was a huge hit. So like he always makes up for like you could say his lost profits or or maybe what the studio would like to make from from his films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely right. But this is it's an amazing filmography. His first ten movies are just wild. I mean, his first five are insane because yeah. like so he does Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman, and then after that it's like here's a blank check anytime you want to make a <laughs> movie from Warner Brothers. Like anytime we got you, pal. Like what do you want to do? A guy with scissors for hands? Sure, you'll probably figure it out. Batman was such a massive success when it came out because it was the it was the first Warner Brothers comic book movie outside of Superman. And Superman was a big success in the 70s, but the last two didn't perform well and the fourth one was just a bomb and everyone hated it. That's the one where Superman gets drunk and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Warner Brothers was like, I don't know about these superhero properties. So they took a chance on Tim Burton. He had only made two films that were pretty small. I mean, Beetlejuice was successful, but these were two still big, small movies. And what he did with Batman was he really got audiences excited for superheroes again. And obviously it would be a long time until they became a regular thing, but Batman were, the Batman movies he made were gigantic successes. Yeah, huge. He, he brought the darkness back to it to kind of wash everyone, erase everyone's memory of Adam West's and his campy comedic take and that comedic take on Batman from the 1960s. And that's why I love Batman with what Tim Burton did because we probably wouldn't have the the DC universe we would have right now. Maybe maybe a Dark Knight trilogy doesn't get made if he doesn't make this dark version in the 90s, in, yeah, 18, if, in 89. You could say if the Batman movies didn't perform well with these gigantic successes... It probably, I mean, superheroes, like you said, could have been a slower time coming. You know what I mean? So yeah. that could definitely be possible because not only 
<clears throat> didn't Warner Brothers make a ton off the box office, but they made maybe tenfold more off merchandise. You know, mm-hmm. that bat symbol, how many shirts have been sold with that bat symbol? And still, I think most people still prefer that Tim Burton bat symbol. Yeah, and plus he was going to make the Superman movie in 1997, but that went down the drain. So he started making a ton of animated shorts. This is when he, when he was an animation student, then working at Disney as well. And like Anthony said earlier, he was working on all these a lot of different Disney projects, but none of his were getting underway. They wouldn't. They didn't really like what he was doing. It was too dark and gothic for for the tone of Disney. There were a couple films that he matched with, but they never would give him his own identity as a filmmaker at Disney, and that's why they left. Ironically, he ended up working with them multiple times after that, especially with Dumbo most recently. But um, actually, Vincent and Frankenweenie were were shorts that he made. Uh, Frankenweenie was in 1984, Vincent 1982, and then Frankenweenie he ended up making into a feature-length film, obviously in the 21st century. When did that come out? 2012. So th- those ideas and the the aesthetics of the characters have always been with him, and it's it's incredible to see him 30 years later after he invents those characters to be able to make movies about them. And what's ironic with Disney, especially, is Disney produced uh, a nightmare, the Nightmare Before Christmas. But they released it under one of their um, child companies. The, they owned a bunch of companies. So one of the companies they owned, they released it under that umbrella. So it didn't have the Disney name on it. And then when it became a gigantic box office, box office success and fans and audiences and families adored that film, then Disney was like, you know what? Let's put our name back on this movie so people know it's a Disney movie. So now you'll see it says Disney's The Nightmare Before Christmas. So... I think Disney always kind of did him dirty that way. Yeah, for sure. Never showing love for his creativity, his unique style of animation. And it's kind of kind of silly that they didn't even want to put their name on his on the movie he produced and helped create. And then it becomes successful. Then they're like, oh, yeah, it's a, by the way, guys, Disney made Disney, that. It's yeah, a Disney movie. Disney made that. Yeah. Hey, Disney's going to Disney. So that unappreciation. Something else I love about Tim Burton's films, it, it's, it's always... It was when I was a kid, I always thought his movies were like kind of horror or scary for me. But really, his movies aren't scary when you rewatch them. It's sometimes there are scary moments, obviously, in Beetlejuice and some of the films. But I wouldn't even really always say that he's a straight up horror filmmaker because, yeah, he features monsters a lot and stuff like that. But it's more about the monsters not really being scary and not being like this ferocious killers of men and women. And it's more like the human side of monsters and empathizing with them, which is really interesting. I think, and I think looking back on it, uh, you could say Sleepy Hollow and Mars Attacks are the only movies where you see a lot of people getting killed. Mm-hmm. And oh no, sw- yeah, oh, yeah, sorry. And Sweeney Todd, but Sweeney did you Todd, Sweeney you- Todd or no? No, I did not. I thought it, I thought it was one of those times where I wasn't listening because <laughs> <laughs> there's some throats to get slit in that. Bro, you, you were listening so hard that you didn't you notice you didn't notice that I didn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> But Sweeney Todd, you're with the character, so it's less scary. But, I mean, in Sleepy Hollow, people are getting their heads cop- chopped off and stuff, and it's very scary with the Headless Horseman. But I think when I was a kid, it was Mars Attacks always scared me. Yeah, aliens. it's freaky, but it's funny yeah. at the same time. Yeah, Like, Mars Attacks, it walks that fine line. But I think, because we were so young when we saw it, it freaked us the hell out. But yeah. I think second, third viewings, it was funny. And we were like, this is ridiculous. This movie is insane. <laughs> but um, anyways, but actually, before we get into the filmography, if you're watching on YouTube, I hope you're to see our costumes. You'll notice that Anthony and I have these brand new laptops on our desk. These are courtesy of LG, the 17-inch LG Graham ultra lightweight laptops. The cool things about them 
is the 16 by 10 aspect ratio, meaning more vertical height versus more of a widescreen look. It's great for editing video, watching movies especially. It looks incredible on this beautiful screen. They're also incredibly light. So we're going to go, if you go into our YouTube bio, we'll put links for the LG Graham 16-inch and 17-inch models. Thank you so much, LG, for sponsoring the show for the rest of the year and for these amazing laptops. We love them so much. Our, our buddies, Manscaped, you know, they're not very gothic. And, you know, Tim Burton probably doesn't use this stuff. But I'm telling you, you should get on this immediately because... Some of the best products you can have for men's grooming, specifically their Lawnmower 4.0. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. There are a bunch of awesome new products coming to the Manscaped line in the next month. We're really excited to share it with you. Got to keep our, our lips sealed for now, but it's going to be some cool stuff that they're just basically broadening their their extending their line and offering more products that men's will use, men will use that so that we don't have to get stuff from like Burt's and Bees and all these other manufacturers that's like one place to get everything you need for your entire body. So they got some exciting stuff coming. So everyone listen, if you need to get a gift for a man in your life or just guys, if you're checking this out, if you, you got to get on Manscaped, some of the best products in terms of grooming, their boxer briefs, super comfortable. We love their performance package 4.0s. We they get sent them to us like every two months, and it's full of men's wipes, deodorizers, boxer briefs, t-shirts are super comfortable. So there's currently over two million men using Manscaped products worldwide. Use our coupon code. These are amazing gifts for guys because this is stuff we actually use. Coupon code Raiders of the Lost at Checo for 20% off your entire order and free shipping. It's a great deal. All right, let's get back into Tim Burton and let's start going through his filmography chronologically. So between 1971 in 1984, that's when he made a ton of these animated shorts, some of them stop motion, some of them an animation and illustrations. You should check them all out. I think you can find pretty much all of them on YouTube. And it's cool because when he brought up the Pixar dudes from that class, they all work together on each other's projects and some of them voice characters for each other. So I think, what's the guy? The guy who directed Incredibles, I think. Andrew Stanton. Or someone else, one of them, not him, someone else. They voice some of the characters of mm -hmm. Tim Burton's short films. It's I think I might, cool. yeah, it might be a different director. But um, in 1985, he got his first feature film made, and that was Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And when I was a kid, I thought this movie was so weird, and I didn't really know what to think of it as a as a as a kid because it seemed like it was for kids, but also for like quirky, weird adults and gothic stuff. And it was, it was fun, but at the same time, I was also scared of it. Yeah, our our brothers loved this movie. Yeah, Jamie they liked were, it a they lot. They were watching it a ton, and then we would see it here and there, and it always kind of freaked me out as a kid because we were watching it when we were really young. Like that truck driver lady yeah, always terrified me, out. me. I was so scared of her. But then I saw it recently as an adult. I'm like, this isn't scary at all. Yeah, but to a five-year-old, it's <laughs> <Yeah>. terrifying. <laughs> so I think we were kind of emotionally scarred by this movie, so I didn't watch it until I became like, well, became an adult again. Yeah, because it doesn't seem like a horror movie like or scary in the first act when he's got his red bike and everything and then gets stolen. But some of the characters, I think, just think for young kids, it was intimidating for me. Yeah, did you know that Judd Apatow helped make this movie? He, he was, really? He was a producer on it. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah, it's, it's a random uh, Judd Apatow fact for today. But yeah, it's a it's a really great first film in, uh, what's his name, Paul Rubin, who created Pee-wee. He tapped Tim Burton to direct it after he'd seen some of his shorts, especially Vincent and Frankenweenie. Yeah, and it's just a, a eclectic blend of these genres and these tones that Tim Burton, uh, you can say, only pulls off, you know, with the weird, with the macabre. Uh, there's some great stop motion elements, like the, the body horror in this. And, you know, the music is amazing. And, you know, he, Tim Burton's great at, at creating iconic characters that you can dress up for as Halloween. And Pee Wee's definitely one with the gray suit and the red bow tie. I don't think anyone wants to dress up like him anymore, though. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> he had some pretty bad allegations a few years ago, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's, yeah right. Yeah. They definitely won't make another him. one. 
Oh no, but he still does that character and everything. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's iconic with the bike, the bicycle. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a crazy movie, and it it's is. it's a great first film. It's a great great job of setting the stage for who he was. I mean, you can you showcase the hell out of his talents for sure, and it was successful. It made forty million dollars, and I don't even think the budget oh, was wow. fifteen million at all. I think it was below that. I think it was single digit millions budget, but it was pretty damn successful. But you can you will see that it doesn't have that. It doesn't quite have the Tim Burton signature visual style yet. Yeah, but so after that, he he didn't make a film for three years because it wasn't until he was presented with the script for Beetlejuice, which he made in 1988, that um, it, and the script wasn't even that wild. Um, it really wasn't really about much, but I think Tim Burton just saw something in it that he could tap his, he could put his genius and his artistic vision into something. He found like a canvas to finally paint as a filmmaker. Well, I guarantee you, this script started out as kind of like just a haunt, like a ghost dark, story. dark ghost story type vision without all the craziness. You know what I mean? It or could, just like a comedy ghost story yeah. with like the couple. But I, I'm sure that Tim Burton added like all the visual elements has got, have got to be his own creation because it's not like the screenwriter wrote all of that into into the screenplay. Like, yeah, no way. Like I guarantee you, the screenwriter didn't write like uh, Beetlejuice is, has arms rolled up and then he they roll out onto the floor and become like hammers or like, arms coming out of dishes while people are eating, like, yeah, stuff like that. I highly doubt that happened. Or even like the musical numbers. Exactly. And the, and the music in in Beetlejuice is definitely something that's different for all the other Tim Burton movies in terms of characters interacting with music that you're hearing. Yeah. I think this is the only film that that happens in its entire filmography. Yeah, but as I was saying earlier, this is probably the closest thing to German expressionism in the modern era of film, and he's still keeping it alive with some of his other films lately. Um, Beetlejuice is probably maybe the most in, most unique character ever put on film. This guy is out of his mind, but there's no one like him. He's so unique and weird, and he's like he's like a monster at, at sometimes. He seems like a serial killer, but he he's like a ghost pretends to be like a good guy he's like a con man sometimes he's really weird and super entertaining and very funny and i michael keaton brought so much to this role no one else could have pulled it off and you can tell like this is before he was a big star he was in mr mom he was in some tv shows and you know he had some other roles in movies before this but you know beetlejuice was his big moment because after this he was in batman and he brings like he has so much energy he's so funny in Dude. this movie he just cracks you up the he whole time. He went for it. Yeah. I love it. Like he 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 went 110. percent Like I'm just gonna be as wild and zany and ridiculous as possible. Nah, I think I have a business card around here somewhere. Here, hold on to that for me. It's <laughs> <laughs> like my favorite line. And his voice and the character. He's like disgusting to look at. Yeah. But, but he's so funny. You, as I'm looking at you as yeah, Beetlejuice. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty disgusting to look at. But like, <laughs> <laughs> but like you can't help but take your eyes away from him and you love him. He's so funny and he's not even the lead of the movie, but he's the front of the poster. He's the title character. And he's the most memorable part. He's probably the most memorable character that Tim Burton's ever put on film. Yeah, I think it maybe was a little ahead of its time in terms of people being prepared for what Tim Burton was going to bring in his career. Because no one ever seen anything like Beetlejuice before. And obviously, this was a simple ghost story, I'm sure. Because uh, the two leads, the the mother, the husband and wife, played by Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin. Baldwin, they get in that car accident. They don't think they're they don't know they're dead yet, and then they're basically ghosts in this house. One of the writers got a great role in it too as the daughter, and she's the only one who could see them. But you can tell it's probably like that was like the main setup, and then maybe there's this ghost character that's communicating with them. But then Tim Burton just made it into a Tim Burton movie. Yeah, and it's it's wonderful production design, you know. And who I I didn't look up the name of this production designer, but you got to give them a lot of props because they add so much to his films. I'm sure he helps con conceptualize everything, but you know, his his team, his crew, 
really help make the movies and i'm sure he understands how important they are and you know the this is i think the best production design in his entire career even better than batman yeah and it's such a low budget but what he pulled off was amazing and great camera trickery like use like how he is able to film in the same scenes uh the 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 couple with Beetlejuice when he's done the little tiny model area yeah in, in the same shots and really great camera techniques like that old school filmmaking like stop motion really brought this film onto a huge level so surreal I think a lot of critics didn't like it because they were the boomers of the generation back then and <laughs> and they didn't like different stuff the 1988 boomers were not ready for it but man it, it's it's awesome I I enjoy the hell out of it yeah and then in 1989 he oh, went to yeah. Gotham and made Batman this movie is excellent. It still holds up today. I still love it. Um, the music from Danny Elfman is obviously iconic, and I think they even sampled it in Zack Snyder's Justice League for a little bit. Danny Elfman did the score. Yeah, yeah, but he, made, the, he, sam- but he sampled his old theme. Yeah, yeah, into, yeah. So you into, hear Batman's old theme just for like a, a yeah. couple parts of it. Um, this movie all around is great, and I think the biggest strength to it is all practical effects, and obviously Tim Burton's touch on the atmosphere in Gotham City. I think what I said earlier about them wanting to erase the idea and the like the people being used to the comic campy version of Batman from the 1960s they wanted to just get rid of that and this is this is the dark knight this is the cape crusader let's do it for real and michael keaton was perfect as bruce wayne for for this movie and i think the studio definitely wanted a, like a strong action hero type leading man but tim burton fought for michael keaton saying like he's the right guy for the role and he did an excellent job and obviously he's so beloved everyone is very excited to see Michael Keaton's Batman again in the new Flash movie and you know there's that trailer that just came out and there's a tease of his of his cowl and then the tease of his Batmobile about to be uncovered by the the pant by the uh, tarp but and he's speaking in it yeah you hear his voice people really love this Batman and like I said the logo is still probably the most beloved logo and it's got one of the best Batmobiles I mean how many toys did they sell with this Batmobile still selling it's unbelievable and the design of this film uh, a lot of these sets are miniatures like Tim Burton didn't have the biggest budget in the world as opposed to superheroes now but he made it look really big and really extravagant and I think the action sequences are excellent like when he drives his car when he drives the Batmobile to attack the bad guys in that factory and then blows the factory up like what an amazing scene and when he drives up a wall yeah (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I think he definitely kills some people in this movie too oh for For, sure for people who complain about Zack Snyder's he definitely definitely bodies some people here plus Jack Nicholson is the Joker he like reinvented the Joker into such a maniac not that uh, other interpretations weren't similar but I think Jack just went full crazy Jack on it and he just kills it in this movie and Jack Nicholson apparently only agreed to play the Joker if he was allowed to do the makeup himself. So he was he decided how the makeup would look, uh, the prosthetics of that always smiling look, and I think he was he took it very seriously for the role. And you can argue he he definitely is one of the best Jokers for sure. Oh, for sure. I have. mean, there's only been what like five recently in the last thirty years. Yeah, he's definitely better than Jared Leto. You could say <laughs> he's probably three Third. to me well yeah three to me now or, or two depending on if you like joker compared to that i don't know if you like the dark take on it um, but, I, but what i like about this joker is that the makeup is f- his face like flesh colored yeah and the clown face is really his real face that's what i like about it where the makeup is reversed like he covers himself with foundation to match like his his skin tone in order to cover the clown makeup. He's also more of a prankster in this movie. Like yeah. when he pranks her with like, after she throws the water on him, he's like, oh my God, my face, it's melting, it's melting, oh my God. And then she's like, are you okay? He's like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> I love that. I think he really took a great direction with the Joker. Yeah, I love it. Um, and also I love the production design in terms of it heavily being influenced by Metropolis, their film mm-hmm. from the, in the 1920s by Fritz Lang. And just, I think that aesthetic and that 
vibe that Tim Burton just has been throwing in a ton of his movies ever since, in addition to German Expressionism, obviously. And we get that Batman theme. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, so Batman's great. And then in 1990, they were like, all right, here's a blank check. Tim Burton, do whatever you want. You've made us a lot of money. A guy with scissors for hands. Whatever, man. Sure, dude. <laughs> whatever, whatever, bro. Edward Scissorhands, 1990. Tim Burton's best movie, in my opinion. Well, my favorite Tim Burton movie. I think it's his most intimate and personal. And this is Johnny Depp's first like very interesting role. And I think it's a great thing that he took this because he was basically a heartthrob at the time. He was kind of like Leo DiCaprio. wasn't was just a jockey hero. And, his TV show. Yeah, I mean, 21 yeah. Jump Street. And so he was just like the it guy. But I think this is probably the kind of project that he'd been waiting to do, looking for. And meeting Tim Burton, I'm sure, enticed him to do it. And this is the start of Johnny Depp's like quirky crazy roles and i love it he's hysterical in this he's so funny as this innocent naive character and you know most of his lines are like one word responses and you know the way his performance i think is just really really funny and he captured this this role perfectly and i think this johnny depp and tim burton is one of the best collaborations we have between a director and actor in history they've made an amazing body of work together and what's really cool about Edward scissors hand is you can kind of look at it as like the creation of ai like an ai robot <laughs> yeah Kind Essentially, of, yeah. kind of. <laughs> I, I, you can even look at Edward as like a representation of Tim Burton himself. You know, isolates mm. himself. He doesn't fit in with society. And I love, I love, just love the character of Edward. You know, he has these scissors for hands because he's incomplete. He isn't a finished being. Um, he's brought into his community, and he turns what they deem a disability with his scissor hands into a gift. And he produces amazing art, and he gains the, you know, the the love of the folks temporarily. It's it's pretty much artificial love. They're only using him for what they can get out of him, whether it be good haircuts or some sort of something exciting. But um, I think again, I think it was a great role for Johnny to take. When Nona Ryder is fantastic in this because it's the exact opposite of what she had just done. In Beetlejuice, instead of being like a goth, depressed daughter, she's like the exact opposite. She's like a popular kid at school, you know, the blonde hair and everything. So I think that even the the jockey boyfriend, that is that's the kid from Anthony um, Michael Hall. Yeah, he's in um, what's it Dark called? Dark Knight. Is he no? But I mean, in the eighties, he's oh. in um, not Breakfast Club, right? Yeah, yeah, Breakfast Club, yep. and also one of those in Sixteen Candles. Sixteen Candles, yeah. He so plays like the that creepy was, friend. Yeah, so that's an exact opposite role. So all the main like the actors in this movie. They were cast as polar opposites of what they usually do, which I think is cool. And you could tell, you could say this is uh, Tim Burton's first fairy tale movie, um, because of the way it's told in the form of a character giving telling the story to another character, in terms of Lydia, an old, an elderly Lydia telling the story to her granddaughter about the man with scissor hands, and it it, it has that fantastical fairy tale quality to this to the filmmaking. There's a lot of narration going on while we see montages of characters, like especially how. You know, flashbacks of Edward and his father, and in in his um not a laboratory, but you know, in his home, and it, it's I think that if you're gonna say comparing him to Wes Anderson, this is like when Wes Anderson started really honing in on his craft, and his movies became very fairy tale like, adult fairy tales, very whimsical with amazing stories and fantastical characters. You can say Edward Scissorhands took that approach here as well, where Tim Burton has made his first real like classical fairy tale, like the kind of thing that, you know, Disney had always done that he always wanted to do. This could definitely be one of those probably concepts he had that they disapproved of. Yeah, complete confidence in his style, you could say. Um, and then in 1993, he didn't direct, but he did the concept art, story, characters of A Nightmare Before Christmas. And 
the cool thing about this film, besides the entire thing, is you know he'd been drawing Jack Skellington for years. Like he, he's been drawing his characters forever. And um, it took because that's what he likes to do. He, he draws characters like he drew Edward Scissor's hands for years, and then he just kind of figures out the story based off the characters he draws. And it was a poem, right? Yeah, I think he turned it into a poem. But this took years for him to actually develop the story for Jack Skellington. So he'd been drawing it forever, and then he finally figured it out. And this is easily one of the most beloved hol beloved holiday films, whether it be watching it on Halloween or watching it on Christmas. It's like the only movie that. It's acceptable for both. I watch it on both usually around the same time because I love this movie. Everything about it is fantastic. The music is incredible. Danny Elfman's as Jack Skellington singing is just some of the best vocal work I've ever heard in a movie. I didn't, I didn't even know like I could sing until I, I – didn't, I didn't even know it was his voice until a few years ago doing yeah. it. Uh, he doesn't do the voice of the character, just the singing parts. But um, overall, it's just such an amazing film. All stop motion. I love it. Yeah, I mean we all grew up watching this film, and it's, it's this movie where – it's a kind of cross, walks that line between horror and it's just kind enough for kids to watch. You know, like when we were kids, it was scary, but it wasn't horribly scary. The third act gets scary. Yeah, the, like bo the boogie, 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 yeah, Oogie Boogie Man. He's pretty terrifying, and I definitely had nightmares about him. But you know, otherwise, it's it's okay f for a kids' movie to be scary, and it's okay for kids to be scared. You know, they need to learn that life. You know, it can be scary sometimes, and you can learn a lesson like that by watching a movie where everything is not sunshine and rainbows. And I think that's why people really love his films and why they gravitated towards Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, we should definitely yeah. do uh, a special on that sometime soon. Absolutely. Um, then in 1994, he made Ed Wood. And this might be his most underrated movie. I think it's really good. we got Bill Murray, Johnny Depp, Sarah Jessica Parker in the main roles. This is a, a biopic based off a real guy, Ed Wood, a director. It's probably the most unique biopic you'll ever see. Um, I love that he shot it in black and white. He shot it basically in the styles of the film from that era. It was the 1950s, I believe. Um, Martin Landau is phenomenal. This movie actually won an Oscar playing Bella Lugosi in Makeup won Best an Oscar too. But this movie overall, it's really, really good. Johnny Depp gives an incredible performance. It's really nuanced, but also very fun and quirky at the same time. And I think it's just very underrated. I like it a lot. Yeah, Edward was like the Tommy Wiseau of his time where he he managed to scrape together enough funds to keep making these movies that were terrible. Like everyone considers them like some of the worst movies ever made like in the century like from 1900 to 2000. Like, yeah, the worst terrible movie. scripts, terrible acting, everything. Yeah, lots of like cheesy sci-fi stuff and sappy romance stuff and Ed Wood didn't really know what he was doing and he didn't care. He just he just kept making the movies and it, he he was hiring professionals and the people working with him were like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, this doesn't make any sense. And even though he had all these things against him, like he still kept making movies and he had that passion to him. And I think Johnny Depp perfectly captured this naivety to the character, this cluelessness, but also this undying spirit to want to make movies no matter what and no matter how people feel about them i'm just going to keep doing it and i think really it's a, it's a special movie about filmmaking yeah it's a really interesting character and he was a really interesting person and there's a ton of like positivity about the trans community in this as well because he you know he likes to dress up in women's clothes and stuff like that so i think it's a little bit of ahead of its time in terms of that socially but overall it's an excellent film you gotta check it out if you haven't seen it yet it's really really good in 1995, he came out with Batman Forever, which was a good sequel. It wasn't as good as the first one, but, you know, I think having Danny DeVito as Penguin and then also Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman really are the best parts of the movie for me. The thing with Batman Returns is 
it it is good it is very good at times but also it can be a little too campy yeah, like a little all much. the little penguin stuff you know it gets a little too much and penguin's direction got a little too campy um like it was, but cuz he started out as like a more nuanced character and then became just full on like this penguin esque like creature uh and yeah, it's like black blood yeah exactly like that doesn't really make any sense but i will say that i, I think this is the best version of catwoman I think Michelle Pfeiffer was excellent and, you know, childhood crush right there. And But it's still a fun time, you know. It's still a great sequel. Uh, it's not as good as the first one. It's hard to pull off a sequel. and But ultimately, it is a good time. It's a great Batman movie. Yeah, another great example where Tim Burton came up with the concept art of Penguin. It looks just like Danny DeVito's end character. And also Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman suit. He came up with the design for the Catwoman suit. Mm-hmm. So, again, even a big film like this... He's doing the concept art pretty much for everything. But what I do like about this is there's a lot of a, like adult hints at adult hints in this movie. You know, it, it can be pretty mature, but it goes over the kids' heads. Yeah, especially it's like with, a SpongeBob episode. Yeah, especially <laughs> with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character. There's yeah. a lot of sexuality and sexual jokes in it, you could say. But as a kid, I never noticed it. Well, I noticed her licking his cowl for sure. Yeah, well, that yeah for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then uh, <laughs> 1996, he actually produced James and the Giant Peach, which I adore that movie. Uh, 1996, he directed Mars Attacks. Now this one was, it's it's kind of like what did he do this on purpose to make it seem be be like a weird film? Because it's not that the concept is bad, but just like the overall execution of parts of it, I, I'm just not in love with. But um, it, either way, it's it's a trip. I mean, it was actually based off aliens, uh, alien tops trading cards, a set that were featured that actually had to be taken down because they were a little too graphic, and parents were complaining. But it looks just like the aliens. That's the the look came from basically. I think with this movie, he was trying to make like a sci-fi horror film, horror film from the fifties. You know what I mean? Those super cheesy sci-fi creature features it's like he was because he just did ed wood was like trying to make a movie like ed wood would make it yeah exactly but it, it, it is it, it's very funny at times and it's very entertaining at fi- at times but ultimately it's like it, I'm, i don't have any inclination to watch it again it's almost on the line where it's like scary movie where it knows what it is and it's kind of meta in a way if, if that makes sense because it knows it's a bad movie that's why i think he made it that way but i mean we i mean we do get jack nicholson as the president yeah, he's, he's pretty good. At this. <laughs> it's awesome. I mean, Helen Mirren's the the yeah. his his uh, first lady. In yeah, it. and then we get a a lady whose head gets put on a little dog. You know, yeah. There's some weird stuff. There's super weird stuff in this movie. It's a weird, weird movie. For Remember sure. the the alien that sneaks into the White House with the disguise of and, a woman? Yeah, and what does she have? Like the in her purse, like the lipstick or something. Something like what that. What is it? I can't or remember. Perfume. Yeah, something like that. But she like is she pulls out her like her laser gun and don't when people get shot don't they become ash in this movie or yeah they have like laser yeah. guns that disintegrate people yeah exactly yeah this movie's crazy it's a trip it's a trip the CGI does not hold up anymore but I mean back then to us it looked real and then oh man all right and then in 1997 he didn't make a movie but for two years he was developing Superman Lives and so this was gonna star Nick Cage as Cal L who actually is a huge Superman comic book fan and even has a first edition, I believe, of Action Comics number one um, from 1938. And there's a great documentary called The Death of Superman Lives. It goes over this entire story. And the film was going to feature Brainiac, Lex Luthor, and Doomsday as villains. Uh, Wesley Strick and Dan Gilroy wrote the screenplay. Oh, Dan Gilroy is very good. Um, and the, the documentary has a ton of great screen test imagery of Nick Cage in the Superman costume. 
And it would have been cool to see, I'm sure, to watch Tim Burton's aesthetic of Superman. But this just shows you that he was the biggest director in the world because he did Batman and then they tapped him for Superman, which is crazy. He was Warner Brothers guy. Yeah. He was like their Chris Nolan yeah, exactly. at the time. Clint Eastwood, Clint, and, Chris and, Nolan, Christina And now they Kubrick. lost Chrissy Nolan. The thing with Warner Brothers is I think that Warner Brothers has the greatest filmography of any studio because they always did what they could for their filmmakers. And, you know, Clint Eastwood, he's been making movies at Warner Brothers for 40 years and like Chris Nolan for 15 and Tim Burton for much of his career. So uh, they understand how important directors are to constantly collaborate with. So I'm sure, especially with the success of Batman, they're like, we have this other giant property. We think you're the guy to do it. And it's a shame. I mean, this this could have been very interesting. You know, this is at the height of Nick Cage. Like, he had just done, what did he just do? Like, Face Off just come out. Yeah, and, mid-90s. Yeah, in The Rock. So, he was still he was Huge a star. gigantic star. So, I think it could have Con had, Air. Could have had a, yeah, Con Air. Could have had a ton of potential. And I really like going with Brainiac in Doomsday. Like, let's just go full out with these giant supervillains. And Superman was going to die in the film and be reanimated. So cool. Yeah. Yeah, why not? Would have been awesome. Yeah, too bad. We'll never know. But definitely check out that documentary. It's really, really cool. I think Kevin well Smith is in it. In the narrates it. I think he does too, yeah. yeah. Haven't seen it in a while. Um, how about we head into our intermission? Oh, yeah, let's go. Yeah, we'll begin. Is with... it a spooky intermission? Uh, some of mine are spooky for sure. So are mine. Um, so this is going to begin with our movie quote competition. I have one from a fan, one from me. So this is from Nick Ruiz. Life is a storm, my young friend. You will bask in the sunlight one moment, be shattered on the rocks the next. What makes you a man is what you do when the storm comes. You must look into that storm and shout as you did in Rome. Do your worst, for I will do mine. Then the fates you will know, you as we know you. Gladiator. No. Not oh, even man. close. It's not Russell Crowe? No. <laughs> Dude, I, I thought you loved. I thought you knew that movie back in front. I don't know. I, I think you just heard my voice and you were like, Yeah, oh, you sounded like Russell Crowe. Ah... Uh... I'm lost. I don't know. Count of Monte Cristo. Oh, I just read the book. Oh my <laughs> it's god! It's a direct quote from the book yeah. as well. <laughs> I just read that. That was pretty bad, guys. Oh my god! I have a quote too from a fan. Oh, this one's for me. Okay, let's hear it. They're here. <laughs> Poltergeist. Correct though. 1982. Good one. All right. Here's my quote from Damon Heinzman, one of our great super fans. Isn't it funny? You hear a phone ring, and it could be anybody, but a ringing phone has to be answered, doesn't it? Oh, man. That's a good one. What movie is that? Want me to say it again? Yeah. Isn't it funny? You hear a phone ring, and it could be anybody, but a ringing phone has to be answered, doesn't it? Oh, man. I'm stumped. That's a great one, too. I just feel like it's on the tip of my tongue. What is it? Phone booth. Keeper, oh, Keeper Sutherland. Dude. That's good, a good quote. It's a good one. A good quote. Got nice, me. Nice one, Dave. All right. Um, you have one from you, right? Yeah. If you were waiting for the opportune moment, that was it. God damn it. God damn it. <laughs> I look like such an idiot. <laughs> um, if you're waiting for the opportune moment, that was it. Is that your Michael Caine impression? I'm, yeah, I don't know why I went Michael Caine. <laughs> sounds just like Michael Caine. It's not Michael Caine. I'm sorry. I won't bury another Batman. <laughs> I'm Michael Caine. I don't know what is it. It's Jack Sparrow. Ah, oh, of course. Yeah. All right, guess this movie release year. In the mouth of madness. In the mouth. 
1948. <laughs> Worst answer of the of all time. 1994. Oh man. Oh, you loser. <laughs> I don't. I don't have the worst answer anymore. <laughs> you did that on purpose, didn't you? How? You knew I would say that. No, you wanted me to get that title. I wanted you to get it correct. <laughs> I hope. I always hope that you get answers correct. I just want for the best for you, Anthony. No, John Carpenter movie. Oh, is it? John Carpenter movie with Michael Caine. I mean, Michael Keaton, I believe. Oh, nice. Here's my movie release year. The Ninth Gate. I love this movie. Oh, man, I better get it right. That's why I picked it. Dude, this movie's exceptional. Johnny Depp, Polanski. Um, it's, is it before 2000? I feel like it's, I feel like it's 1997. 99. Oh, man. Awesome movie. You guys should check it out if you haven't seen The Ninth Gate. It's really, really good. Um, all right, movie pop quiz time. Let's hear it. What was Wes Craven's first film? He wrote and directed it. Oh, good question. It. I'll give you a hint. It was remade into a horror film again this century. Can I ask, is it super graphic? Yeah, sure. Not like the most graphic thing ever. There's some graphic stuff going on for sure. Oh man, I don't know. Is it a slasher? Um, yeah, yeah. Are there multiple killers in it? That's a lot of questions you're asking. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna go with the Hills Have Eyes. No, no. You want another hint? Yeah. Jennifer Lawrence is in the remake. Last House on the Left. There you go. Thank you. There you go. That was a good hint. All right. Here's my quiz. Eva Green's debut was in what Bernardo Bertolucci film? Oh, what's this called? Um, With Michael Pitt. Yeah. Um, oh, man. What is it called? It's her, Michael Pitt, and the, and the dark-haired guy. <laughs> yeah, he's got it's, hair it's like It's like, it's a, it's a plural word, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's plural. Uh, what is it? <laughs> bathtubs <laughs> <laughs> no but they they have that intimate scene in the bathtub oh what's it called god <laughs> damn it god damn it i just uh didn't get any right today Getting so worked up <laughs> oh for four what is it the dreamers the dreamers ah <laughs> oh, god i think you're being a little too hard on yourself no man i'm not being hard enough everyone has a bad night it was a tough it was a tough set i stumped you I got you. Even Damon got me. Even Damon got you. All right, let's move on to our hater of the week. Who we got? Actually, I have a hater of the week from YouTube. Personally. Let's hear it. So this is from Zach Wiest. How could you not talk about the Scream TV show? It's obviously better than the movies, and the costume is so much better than the movie's costume. I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to unsubscribe. Sincerely, a former fan. <laughs> former fan. <laughs> He's just kidding. <laughs> All right, I got a bunch of uh, unsubscribers. Ready? So, Carpio2017 wrote in one of our TikTok clips, James is looking too smug in this clip. Unsubscribe. <laughs> I do sometimes look too smug. And then Gooch Monster wrote in my... <laughs> You gotta, you gotta filter the names, bro. It's Gooch. What's Gooch? I'll tell you afterwards. Oh, I don't know. I didn't know that was a bad word. 
<laughs> what's a, what's a, you're ridiculous so i did a, a clip about christian bale having a photographic memory and said he said how are you going to act like this man has a photographs inside his mind unsubscribed <laughs> <laughs> photographs inside his mind that's it that's that's our unsubscribed haters our biggest supporter of this episode is from nata left a great five-star review one of the best film podcasts out there i've been listening to james and anthony ever since i watched Tenant got almost half got lost halfway through the movie and stumbled across Raiders of the Lost podcast explaining the movie. Not only did these not only did they perfectly explain the film, but they did it in a way that was both hilarious and welcoming to new film geeks like myself. After that, I've listened to most of their episodes and have recommended it to my friends and family. Wow, thank you That's so much. That's so much since last fall. Give this podcast a chance, and I promise you won't regret it. Keep up the great work, wise guys, and drug pin king lord for life. Hey. Let's go. <laughs> On this day in film, oh, thank you so much for the review, Nata. On this day in film and TV history, October 25th, in 1955, publication of The Return of the King, the third and final volume of The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, is published. Um, 1988, comedian Richard Pryor is awarded the first ever Mark Twain Prize for American humor. What's oh, our wow. streaming recommendation? Step Brothers is on Netflix. Oh, yes. <laughs> Love it. One of the funniest movies ever made. Talladega Nights is on Amazon Prime, too. Yeah, so funny. All right, let's get back to the episode. Let's go. Um, where where do we leave off? Sleepy Hollow. All right, let me get my list back up. All right, so Sleepy Hollow came out in 1999. And this is overall, I think, one of the best Halloween films to watch. I think it's incredible. It's spooky, great acting, Pretty solid script. Christopher Walken has shaved teeth and he growls with a sword in his hand. So, I mean, it's pretty great. Um, I love the interpretation of Ichabod Crane. He's like this coward. He's hilarious. He's like a cowardly Sherlock Holmes. Super fun. Johnny Depp's awesome in this movie. In the aesthetic, the cinematography, the tone. I love everything about it. Yeah, like I said earlier, it's my favorite Tim Burton movie. I just really love the story. Uh, everything that Tim Burton did with the, the style and the tone. And I think he's really, by this point really honed in on his craft at and he is a, like a master of what he's doing by this point after making the batman movies after making a couple of his other gothic horror films and i think especially coming off of mars attacks i'm sure he wanted to get back into that gothic horror space which he loves so much so i think he put a lot into this film and i just think danny Elfman's score you know walk in as the headless horseman who doesn't even say a word but is still an awesome movie villain creature excellent ending uh, and yeah, John, it's really fun. It's great, great, Super ironic. Yeah, and then Johnny Depp is just so much fun as the lead as Ichabod Crane, and he's he's a perfect lead for Tim Burton movies. And yeah, you can see clearly in this film. Dumbledore's in this too. Dumbledore two point yeah. is in this movie as well. <laughs> yeah, Michael Gambon. Um, yeah, overall, Christina Ritchie's exceptional in this movie. I love her filmography because we've talked about her before in terms of being like a not a scream queen, but like a horror queen, where she's in a bunch of different genres of horror. You could films. say she's the gothic queen. Yeah, the gothic modern gothic queen. queen. You know, she's in Casper. She's in in this she's an Adams family so she's all over the place when it comes to these fun horror Matilda films. yeah so I think she, I love her filmography and this movie's awesome yeah. it's one of my favorite to watch around Halloween we should watch it on Halloween we should man yeah. we should just watch it tomorrow why not let's go actually we're going to see The Last Duel yeah um, tomorrow on the 21st anyways next up we have The Planet of the Apes which was released in 2001 and so this is his you could say remake of the original or just new interpretation of the book um, I think it's overall pretty okay. I think the best aspects of the film are the production, stuff like the prosthetic makeup, I think was actually really incredible for the time. It still holds up pretty well. 
Um, budget was $100 million, and it made 365 so it was super successful. A ton of cons. I don't know if I'm a huge fan of like the alternate dimension aspect to it. Um, the original ending from the from the first one with the Statue of Liberty at the end, I know they tried to like do it with the Lincoln Memorial, but I just don't think the ending makes a ton of sense. But obviously, it's like a different dimension, not time travel. But I think Mark probably wasn't Mark Wahlberg wasn't perfectly cast in this movie. I think they just wanted him because he was a star. Yeah, the ending I did not like at all. When you know Abraham Lincoln in this universe, it was a, like a gorilla did the same thing as Abraham Lincoln. It just didn't really make sense, and I know it was striking visually. And surprising because, like, I mean, audiences weren't going to see that coming. I think they were expecting something to happen. But for when he landed landed back on Earth to see that, like, the Lincoln Memorial is actually, like, a, an ape. Very strange ending. But like you said, the makeup is really excellent. Very, very good. And Tim Roth is awesome as the villain. Yeah. I think he is phenomenal. He's one of the best. Un, he's one of the most underrated movie villains of all time, you could say, in this film. He just steals every scene he's in. He is terrifying as this character. And I think that, again, I agree, Mark Wahlberg, I think a little too early in his career to lead a big-budget movie at this point. Uh, but ultimately, I think he did the, he got the job done. Tim Burton, he made a very good movie, but it just didn't quite match the original Planet of the Apes. And in terms of the story, I think that audience is... This is... Uh, 40 years after the first Planet of the Apes, almost. And audiences, after 40 years of cinema, were looking for something more nuanced in terms of, you know, approaching the apes, whereas they still went with the apes being the adversaries of the lead. And I think that uh, the modern trilogy, Andy Serkis's trilogy, approaching it through the lens of Caesar and through the perspective of the apes was the right way to tell a story for modern audiences. But this is also the film where he met Helena Bonham Carter and started Aww. their... Um, offset relationship and partnership, but also her being a frequent collaborator going forward with Tim Burton in addition to Johnny Depp in several films. So. She's, she's got the Jennifer Aniston hair in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she, the acting's great in this movie. Paul Giamatti's awesome in this movie. Oh, yeah, the orangutan. Yeah, yeah, so the, the cast's really good, but, you know, it's just kind of falls short in the third act for sure and again i don't really like the interdimensional stuff i would prefer if it was just like time travel instead. yeah I but I, I think they did an amazing job with the prosthetics i think it really looked fantastic if you love tim burton movies there's no better way to express that love than buying some movie posters of his and you gotta do it at movieposters.com our amazing sponsor they have teamed up with us to offer a special promo code raiders10 to get 10% off your order today now we used to have a different code unfortunately it was shared too much online on those websites like those pr promo code websites people try to steal from so we had to change our code so the new code is raiders10 again raiders10 at movieposters.com they have high quality posters if you're looking at our set it is decked out with these amazing posters don't go to Amazon.com, even though it's free shipping. It is crappy quality. Movieposters.com is number one. They have pretty much every film imaginable, all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting, whatever your poster needs are, they can handle it. Again, go to Movieposters.com and use the po use our promo code Raiders10. Hopefully Bezos doesn't listen to our show because he'd hear you always crapping on their products. Yeah, their posters suck. <laughs> 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 Let's move on <laughs> to Big Fish in 2003. This is another this is an example of a like a minimal Tim Burton-esque style film in terms of the gothic elements. I, I really like this movie. It's, you know, you and McGregor, you and McGregor, you and McGregor, aka Obi-Wan Kenobi is the lead of this film. 
And it's um it's actually like a really beautiful story about a rekindling relationship between father and son. And you know, the son wants to know who his father really was, and he ends up telling him these incredibly exaggerated stories of his past. I think it's really a really emotionally rewarding film by the end, and I, I really like the aesthetic. It's a, kind of like a fairy tale. Yeah, Ewan's great in it, and then um, Helen Bonham Carter. Helena Bonham Carter is excellent in it too as that old woman in that house living by herself and you know this movie has excellent cinematography it's super colorful his by far his most colorful film you know you see a lot of sunlight in this movie which mm -hmm. is such a contrast from usually the grim gothic cloudy moon and so it's definitely a different visual experience for big fish and I think it's really it has those great fantastical elements but it's put into this film in a really um, nuanced way not his typical flamboyant over showy way and i just think that big fish is definitely one of his most underrated films for sure yeah for sure uh 2005 he actually released two films the first is the biggest one charlie and the chocolate factory and so this is basically a, a reimagining you could say of the original 1971 film was that the year it came out i believe and novel from before then overall i enjoyed this movie like i would give it a thumbs up obviously the original is better and with that original being so visually stunning and unique, like how does Tim Burton top it? And this was the first film that you could say heavily featured him using CGI a lot. And there's there's some in Big Fish, but yeah. not this much. But this one is is really him stepping in into that and embracing the world of CGI more than ever in his entire career. Um, I think it's funny. I'm not a huge fan though of Johnny's performance or the character design. But aside from that, I, I enjoy the movie. The, the interpretation of the character is so much different from the original. And Johnny Depp, I, I, he's very funny. But the thing is, he doesn't have that warmth that Willy Wonka had in the original. Yeah. You know what I mean? Even though Willy Wonka in the original is like very sarcastic and yeah. demeaning, sometimes he's still very warm. Like you yeah, said. You, he, he's still very lovable. Whereas this Wonka, is he seems kind of like a sociopath. And, and, and they play it for laughs, and it can be funny, but also it's very awkward at times. And I think that just their interpretation of the Wonka character was a little too off for audiences to really love it and gravitate to it. But it is a funny movie. It's very entertaining. I like I like the set design. It's very different. Um, and Tim Burton was mixing it up. CGI is pretty good. It doesn't really hold up too much today, but they did a good job with it for 2005. Ultimately... I think that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I mean, how do you live up to to the original? It's it's one of the best kids' movies ever made, so I, it's tough to top that. But I think they did an okay job, but ultimately, I'm not even sure it needs to get made. I just realized that Timothy Chalamet is doing two Johnny Depp roles because yeah. he's doing Wonka Origins, and then he also did Edward Scissorhands in that Super Bowl commercial, which yeah, is super Yeah, the fun. car commercial. I like that commercial a lot. I think yeah. he was perfect as that. Yeah, when Ona Ryder was in it, yeah. she played his mom. He played Edward Scissorhands' son. <laughs> 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 gotta get a name drop for Chalamet on here <laughs> dude is killing it what a life you got some Chalamet hair right now who me yeah without the wig no you have it with the wig in real yeah oh with the wig yeah that's the only way it's I got can. a little Chalamet to it <laughs> <laughs> all right let's move on to also in 2005 he released Corpse Bride and this was a stop-motion film that he directed also has a combination of stop-motion with some CGI and digital elements but overall I think this is a perfect representation of of Tim's artistic voice and storytelling and it's really unique, interesting, and also a beautiful story. Yeah, it's a, it's a great animated film for kids, and it reminds me a lot of yeah, Beetlejuice. It has a lot of those elements with the with the husband and wife, and you know, with death. And I think that Tim Burton, what makes his movies so great, especially his kids' films, is he's not afraid to tackle death. You know, most 
most animated films won't approach that subject. And if they do, it will be like maybe for a bit of the story, but not most of it. But he just goes right in like these are dead characters. Like this is death. You know what I mean? So I think that he really tackles kids' storytelling in a unique way. Yeah. But I mean, if you think about it, people and parents have been telling like fairy tales, scary fairy tales to kids forever and scary stories because, you know, I think what you mentioned in, earlier in the podcast is like the world isn't rainbow and butterflies all the time. You have to expose kids to dark elements of life so you can prepare them. And I think stories are the best way to do that. And, you know, modern fairy tales being turned into films, I think, is a great example of of how to show death to your children and kids in a in a safe way. Great. Great. Well said. Thanks, pal. Uh, 2007, he dropped what I said earlier was probably his last great film, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. 2007 German expressionism is all over this film I think it's really brilliant movie I love the execution with the singing and the cinematography the set design wardrobe just the makeup of the characters as well um it's dark I love the gritty nature of it and like this 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 dark London vibe and the rodents and insects everywhere like when you watch this movie you just like kind of feel dirty in a way and it's a brilliant mix of of beauty horror um, I, I enjoy the, the tones that like the, the desaturated monochromatic tones of the film. I think, I think it needs a little more color though, but I think the, what he was doing was the blood is the color and like the fire of the color of the film. Who do you think did better as Sweeney Todd, Giant Depp or Ed Helms, Helms in the it, office? <laughs> <laughs> Depends. Can I have a bottle of wine and be Michael Scott and roll it down by accident? <laughs> I knew you'd like that. Love that episode. I, I think this is one of Tim Burton's best movies. It's definitely, I think, it is top five. And Johnny Depp is sensational. Helena Bonham Carter as well. They're they're both such talented performers and singers. And this movie is gross. You know, it's disgusting. Go- really like, intense gore. Nasty. But it's a great story. It's such yeah. a great idea for a musical. I think it's a lot of fun. Serial killers are it, so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. People love serial killers, but people people love movies like this. And Tim Burton. I think obviously gravitated to the story because he could do so much creativity creatively with it. And I just think it's a brilliant character, like this barber who just kills his clients and and then downstairs they get turned into meat pies. It's, it's like gross. It's insane. The but, gore is intense. Like yeah. there are some throat slits where he'll show the throat slit and the camera cuts to a different shot and then he goes back to the throat pouring blood out. It's like, oh my God, like yeah. I'm, I'm gonna eat before this. Like, holy crap. Yeah, it's not for the faint of heart, but it, it's a lot of fun. And I think that the musicals are the num- musical numbers are really excellent. Wardrobe is sensational in this, and I think that the entire team and crew, the actors, did a phenomenal job with this film. I agree, it's his last really great film. He's made some good films since then, but, I mean, Sweeney Todd is definitely in his top five. In 2010, he had his most successful film with Alice in Wonderland, and he straight up embraced the hell out of CGI in this more than ever in his entire career. You could say the entire movie is just CGI, pretty much. Yeah. I'm not a massive fan of this film. I think... Aesthetically, it looks really good for the most part, but I also think that it looks a little too much like Lord of the Rings in in a lot of moments. Made over, made one point two billion dollars, so it's it was wildly successful. Um, overall, I think the story is a little flat, especially like towards the third act. I just I, I love the visuals again, but I think just it doesn't have like emotional substance to like really connect with an audience. Yeah, and it is a. And it seems like it's an impossible story to really pull off. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's hard to even tackle it as a storyteller and a filmmaker. And I think that I was surprised when I saw the trailer how much CGI there was because of Tim Burton being Tim Burton. 
maybe it just was easier to do the to pull the film off. I don't know. I mean, Helen Bonham Carter, her giant head looked good, but otherwise, all of the sets, all of the fantastical elements in this other world, it was all CGI. And I just, for me, it looks a little too much like a video game. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's it's hard to get into a movie where it is all CGI except for you know the lead characters and. Although we did, it, this was um, the breakout role for Mia Wasikowski, who's an excellent actress, and she did a great job as Alice. But, you know, the movie, it has its great moments, but ultimately I think it is a, kind of an underwhelming adaptation of this fantastical yeah. story. But, I mean, like you said, who would even want to try to tackle this yeah. movie? But I guess, I mean... And also, there are such devoted fans to the story, it's hard to please everyone. But I do love Johnny Depp as the Mad Hatter. He's, he's great. He's yeah. awesome. This, I love the character design of that. And, um, like, Tweedledee and Tweedledum are fun, and, and the cat... Um, He's pretty cool. What's his name? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I can't remember his I name. I can't remember. Someone's it's a gonna, cool cat. Someone's going to get upset in the comments. <laughs> let's Unsubscribe. Move, let's move on to Unsubscribe. In 2012, Tim Burton came out with Dark Shadows. And so I think this movie, again, not amazing, but I think it has great production elements, like the blend of practical with CGI here works really well, especially with things like... Johnny Depp playing this vampire and they digitally got rid of all of his blinking in the movie to make it show like he never blinks at all, which is really cool. And I think they also refined his skin and got rid of any blemishes too because he has pristine skin. Yeah. But there's a reason why we didn't include this in our vampire episode because it ultimately isn't that amazing of a movie. It's funny. I just think that the tone of the film didn't quite work. You know, Johnny Depp does his best. Eva Green's really funny, but... You know, the movie, like, there's like 30 minutes of Eva Green just trying to get Johnny Depp to, to sleep with her. You know, it's kind of, it gets a little old. And I, I know that the both Burton and Johnny Depp were really fans of the property um, when they were younger, which is why they wanted to make this movie. But I'm not sure that it really resonated with audiences in a powerful way at all. I agree. In 2014, Tim Burton came out with Big Eyes. And this is a pretty damn good movie. And this is the least Tim Burton-esque Tim Burton movie. I think it's a nice change of pace. Um, Amy, Amy Adams is, is sensational in this movie. So she plays this artist who became super famous for her beautiful paintings where she would put these big eyes on the characters. And then her husband, played by Christoph Waltz, basically steals her art and passes it off as his own. It's a crazy real story. And again, Amy Adams is awesome and Christoph Waltz is always great in his, as a villain. And there are some, you know, fantastical Tim Burton whimsical moments in there. But for the most part, she's, straightforward film yeah there's plenty of courtroom scenes too you know what i mean this is a pretty traditional kind of film for tim burton to make and he did a really good job i think it's a fascinating story both actors are excellent they did a great job with the cinematography i mean it's a incredible story that seems so so un so unbelievably true but you also feel so bad for this character who's in this marriage of a controlling man who you know takes her work for his own and he becomes worldly, world famous for it and extremely successful. And then, you know, it's the battle between, you know, people believing whether she painted them or he painted them. And it's, it's an amazing story. 2016, he came up with Miss Peregrine's, Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, the stars Ava Green. And who's like, you could say like now one of his new favorite muses, you could say. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think this movie overall visually is great. And uh, some more production elements are fantastic. Again, the guy knows how to direct a movie like every time. The acting's solid. The story is solid, but the script is pretty weak. A lot of the dialogue is not that great. Um, I like the brightness and colorful aesthetic as opposed to his dark style, creative cinematography. Overall, 
uh, not that amazing of a movie. This is like the Tim Burton version of X Men, <laughs> and Ava Green's character plays like Xavier. Yeah, she has the uh, the school of these students who have these amazing abilities, and it, it is it's a great setup, very intriguing idea. And Sam Jackson plays a pretty solid villain. He's pretty scary in this. It's nice to see him in a Tim Burton movie. You wouldn't ex- I didn't expect to see him in it, but I, I and you know creatively, it's beautifully made, great production. Cinematography, special effects, but again, I agree with you. The script is where it's really lacking, and I'm not, I haven't read the book, I haven't read the novel, but uh, I mean, it has to have been better than the screenplay was. So probably, I think the the writing is where the problem was. And then 2019, the last film that Tim Burton released was Dumbo in his uh, recreation of the beloved cartoon character of the flying elephant, who is the main attraction of a carnival, and this movie. The CGI is actually really good of Dumbo. Yeah, it's amazing. But I think that some people are kind of scared of of the Dumbo in this movie, but I think he's very cute. I think it's either you think he's scary or cute. I think he's adorable. Oh, yeah, it's that blend of... I mean, Tim Burton's are always... Tim Burton movies are always kind of scary, even the kids' movies. So, I mean, that's always been his repertoire. Yeah, but this movie, again, same. I think same problem with his last few films. The script is just not that great, despite the fact that the production elements are fantastic. The cast in this movie is really good. We have basically like a Batman Returns <laughs> reunion. We have Dane DeVito, Michael Keaton, Ava Green, obviously. So awesome. Colin awesome Farrell. Ca- yeah, Colin Farrell. Yeah. Awesome cast. Um, I think that I think the child performers in this movie are really, really good. I think they might be the best part of the movie besides the CGI of Dumbo. But overall, I think it was a little underwhelming for me personally. Yeah, it's got excellent cinematography and production design. Like all the carnival scenes are really beautiful and you know, the production is excellent. And I think I think it was a good adaptation. I think it you know, it's a tough story to sell nowadays. And I think they did a great job of, you know, translating that weird carnival v- style and vibe that carnival vibe, this, bro. Yeah, the carnival vibe. It's like, you know, the traveling circus, you know, it's very out of the ordinary. People are involved in those things. So I think uh, combining that with Tim Burton's style was a lot of fun. I think they did a, a great job with this film. Yeah. And currently, like I said, he is filming Wednesday, which is a Netflix TV series. I thought you meant he's filming on Wednesday. <laughs> of a, of um, uh, Wednesday Adams of the Adams Family. And then it was announced that he will be doing Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice 2 with Michael Keaton. And who knows when that will be start filming, maybe next year, hopefully. The Keaton sauce is in full effect, man. For real, man. That guy's career is just back Since booming. Birdman. Booming more than before, man. Yeah. He's got all of his big roles coming back. And besides directing, he's obviously produced a ton of great films. He produced Alice Looking Through the, one, looking through the Looking Glass, uh, Let's see, music videos. Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, Nine, which is a film of a, then, a, of, yeah. of a style that's based basically off his aesthetic. Overall, just one of the most exciting, intriguing, and unique directors of all time. And his films are, will be celebrated forever. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of his movies and his work and his creativity. And just, I always look forward to him coming out with like stop motion movies. And I'm always excited when he's making something new, but I can't wait for Beetlejuice too. Yeah, he's one of the modern greats and you know, his, no one makes movies like Tim Burton does. And I'm always excited when a new one comes out. He has an amazing visual flair and style that nobody else has ever been able to duplicate or come close to. And he's one of a kind. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast, a director spotlight on Tim Burton. Be sure to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast because, I, like I said, I put my two weeks in, so you're paying our bills now, everybody. We need somebody, please. Thanks so much who, to everyone who already is a patron. Stay tuned for more Halloween spooky season stuff coming this month, and take care. Bye, everyone. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler.
Opening music by Chase Jackson. <laughs>